In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Dear people of God, today's gospel reading is a familiar one. It's the story of doubting Thomas, the disciple who wouldn't believe in the resurrected Christ until he saw him and his wounds in the flesh. Most of us know the story pretty well, but rereading the account over the past few weeks, I was startled afresh by the passage, and particularly by the way that the story unfolds. John's entire gospel is thoughtfully organized, and today's reading is as well. It's organized in a way that really packs a punch. John's use of repetition helps to create this effect. Things in this story tend to come in twos. For example, when Jesus first appears in the locked room, he repeats himself, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were glad, and he said to them again, peace be with you. I find the repetition of the phrase, peace be with you here, to be extremely tender. The disciples are afraid. They've just watched their leader get arrested and crucified, and they must have been thinking, are we next? We can't be certain, but I imagine that when John went to see Jesus on the cross, his sorrow was accompanied by fear. When Jesus looked down from the cross and told John, care for Mary, John may have been looking over his shoulder, wondering how long it would be before the authorities came for him. So the disciples have locked the doors and were likely on edge, and then Christ appears. No doubt they jumped out of their skins. The first peace be with you was likely just to calm them down. Whoa, it's okay. Catch your breath. And then he shows them his wounds, his hands and side, and all of that fear and anxiety and anguish is overwhelmed, completely submerged by waves of joy and astonishment and recognition. It's Jesus. And then Jesus says it again, peace be with you. And this time the words are like an embrace. And they all can embrace, and not just physically. The wounds Jesus has shown them testify to the reconciliation between God and humankind. The fact that Jesus says, peace be with you, twice speaks to a larger pattern that we see across Scripture. God often has to repeat himself when talking to his people. When people are in the presence of God, it's very rarely the case that they understand what's going on or they want to obey from the get-go. Usually it takes time, and in some cases a good deal of persistence on God's part for people to see him, to begin to understand his purposes rightly. Consider Job. It's only after a great deal of wrestling that we arrive at chapter 42, our reading for today, in which Job is finally able to say to God, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Or take John on the island of Patmos. The Lord speaks to John from behind, commanding him to record what he sees. And when John turns and sees the resurrected Christ in all his glory, he falls down in fear. Jesus must calm him down before inviting him once again to record what he sees. And then there's Paul. When Paul encounters Jesus on the Damascus Road, it takes Ananias laying hands on him and saying, be filled with the Holy Spirit before he can see again. And Jonah, go to Nineveh. No, go to Nineveh. <laughs> and Peter, do you love me, Peter? 
Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me, Peter? And on and on. Why does it take so long to see Jesus? God's love and his glory and his grace and his justice often defy our expectations as finite and fallen creatures. So it takes time for us to recognize him for who he is. It's only after the questioning and wrestling, after he tells us to fear not, after the scales fall from our eyes, after the first peace be with you, that things start to make sense. On a first encounter with the risen Lord, the people of God often find something totally unexpected, but they come to see that that unexpected reality is a perfect fulfillment of what's come before, perhaps more than they could have hoped for. Certainly that's what the disciples must have experienced when Jesus first visited them in the locked room. But the story is not done yet. (laughs) A week passes, and now John's use of repetition really picks up. Only this time, it's not Jesus' words, but the entire scene itself that starts to repeat. It's the same day of the week, the doors once again been locked, and Jesus appears a second time. The difference, of course, is that Thomas is present. Thomas, who told the disciples, unless I see the hands, in his hands, the marks of the nails, and place my fingers into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now, Thomas himself is not simply a doubter, but a double. John takes time to note that Thomas is called the twin. Thomas means twin, as if he wants to make it absolutely clear to us that the repetition in this passage is not insignificant. Whether or not it was intentional, here we have a story about a twin in a scene with repeated dialogue that is itself repeating. The disciples must have been absolutely overjoyed when Jesus showed up a second time, and not just because they were going to see their Lord again. They had surely been trying, desperately trying, to convince Thomas of Jesus' resurrection. And Thomas had issued an ultimatum, unless I see, I won't believe. Now they must have thought, he's actually going to see the truth for himself. And I have to think this time, when Jesus said the first, peace be with you, the disciples would not have been startled, but almost giddy, winking at each other, you know, elbowing each other. The scene with Thomas is following the exact same script. They know what's coming next. They're primed for the big reveal. Jesus is about to show Thomas his wounds, and then he'll utter that second glorious, peace be with you. And then they'll get to relive the joy and astonishment and recognition they experienced a week ago, but this time through Thomas's eyes. But it doesn't happen. Like so many uh, other encounters with God throughout the Bible, the Lord defies our expectations. And John has used repetition to emphasize the difference. Here's the punch. Something unexpected is happening here. Pay attention. Here comes a new thing. We'll return to what's different in a moment. Because in order to understand what John is up to here, I think it's helpful to zoom out and look at some of the larger structural elements of his gospel. As you probably know, John organizes his gospel around seven signs of Jesus's ministry. If you have a fourth or fifth grader at All Souls, you should quiz them on this point because Deacon Rob and I have been teaching on the seven signs during our spring catechesis hour with them. Our class is looking at one sign per week, and so far we've discussed Jesus turning water to wine, saving the royal official's son from death, 
healing the sick man at the sheep's gate, feeding the 5,000, walking on water, and granting sight to a blind man. Today in class, we're going to discuss the seventh sign, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. In relating these stories, John explicitly refers to Jesus' miracles as signs, using the Greek word for sign, semion. This is the word uh, from, from where we get our, our word semiotics, the study of signs. What are they signs of? For John, each semion reveals Jesus' glory to his followers, the glory of the creator God himself. Behold the one, John announces to his readers, who fills cups with gladness, satisfies the hungry, heals the sick, rules over the waters, restores the sight of the blind, and even resurrects the dead. Like the seven days in the creation account, John gives us seven signs of new creation, amplifying with each sign the message of his great prologue. All things were made from him, and we have seen his glory. This larger organizational structure helps us see what John seems to have wanted to highlight through the doublings and the difference of the Thomas story. He wants to show us another sign. Let me read a little bit from that account once more. Unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger into the marks of the nails and place my hand in the side, I will never believe. And he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Though John doesn't use the Greek word semion here, Thomas tells the other disciples that he wants to see the marks of the nails. Ton tupon ton helon in Greek. That Greek word tupon is a form of tupos, which means a mark caused by a blow. But it also means a mark like a stamp or a figure. That is, a mark that conveys meaning. It's the word from which we get our English word type. The King James Version translates tupon as print. Except I shall see in his hand the print of the nails. There's something sign-like about Jesus' wounds. Here we have a sign that's written right into Jesus' flesh. And like the previous signs in John's Gospel, this sign includes a recognition of who Jesus is and his glory. When Thomas encounters the wounds of Christ, he declares, My Lord and my God. Once again, something totally unexpected from Jesus. His broken flesh has become a mark a marker of the glory of God. Two weeks earlier, palm branches in hand, could the disciples have possibly imagined this? Surely not. Yet once again, Jesus has shattered expectations in ways that perfectly fulfill the scriptures. 700 years earlier, Isaiah had rolled open a scroll and wrote these words, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And by his wounds we are healed. And now these words fit in a way they couldn't possibly have fit before. In fact, Christ's hands and sides make sense of so much. Abraham and Isaac, the Passover lamb, the sacrifices at the temple, the suffering servant, the law's deep concern for the most vulnerable people in Israel's midst, the blessings of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' healings of people's bodies, his power over the physical world, the raising of Lazarus, the overflowing wine at Cana, 
the abundance of bread for the 5,000, the Lord's Supper, even our psalm for today. The works of his hands are faithfulness and justice. The marks of Christ underwrite all that has come before and all that comes after. You see, John isn't quite done with the signs yet. There's another set of marks that is underwritten by the marks of Christ, and that is, of course, John's gospel itself. Based on what Jesus himself said in the locked room, John knows that not everybody will be able to see Christ's wounds. But the marks of Christ are vitally important for everybody to know about. And a medium is needed that's up to the task of communicating the significance, the permanence of those marks, and and thereby engendering belief for future generations of Christians. More marks must be made, but this time on parchment. John says as much. And it's telling that he does so immediately after the story of Thomas. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in in this book. But these are written so that you may believe. Thanks be to God for John the writer. The careful organization of his entire gospel and of this story in particular suggests that John deeply desired to reveal the glory of Jesus to us through his writing. But here's the even more remarkable thing. It's not simply John's desire that we would have the marks of Scripture. It's the desire of the risen Christ himself. How do we know? Well, let's journey with John from the locked room to the island of Patmos. Now, some scholars think that the John of Revelation is not John the Apostle, but the traditional perspective is that it was John, John the Apostle on Patmos. At any rate... John tells us he was in the spirit on the Lord's day when he heard a loud voice like a trumpet. It's a dramatic scene. And do you know what the voice says? Write. (laughs) Write what you see in a book. Here again, something totally unexpected from God. What an opener. As a writing teacher, I have to admit, I kind of love it. (laughs) Write. And I picture John totally frozen at first and then slowly turning, completely terrified to see standing before him the risen King Jesus in all his glory. John says, I fell down as though I was dead. But because of Christ's death and resurrection, because of Christ's glorious wounds, John need not die in the presence of God. Our estrangement with God is overcome. The great King of kings and Lord of lords who appears with shining face, flaming eyes, roaring voice, sword-tipped mouth, this king. He just, he lays a hand on John. And then he comforts his fears. Don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. He's somehow awe-inspiring and tender at the same time. And then the Lord does what he so often needs to do when talking to his people. He repeats himself. Now write. (laughs) Though the command of write may seem a, a little strange to us as a way for God to introduce himself to John, upon reflection, our response to this command can only be gratitude because this command is for the church. It's for us. It's for you and me. God's repeated command to write is, as John himself tells us in his gospel, so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ. There's one more thing, though. 
because it's not simply about belief. It's also about blessing. Through these written marks, Jesus himself desires to bless us. Now, our Lord loves Beatitudes. His prayer book, the Psalms, starts with one. He used them in sermons. And the revelation of John contains seven more blessings, a kind of echo or compliment to the seven signs of John's gospel. But here's the first of the blessings in the book of Revelation. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of the prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what's written for the time is near. Is it possible that blessings were poured out to churches all around the world today as the scripture was read? Through these marks, the Lord desires to bless us, which brings us back to the locked room. Because one of the things that Jesus wants to emphasize through his use of repetition is yet another beatitude. Instead of saying, peace be with you, a second time, as we would expect from the other repeated elements, Jesus says something unexpected. And it's something that doesn't apply to a single soul in the locked room. He says to Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? And then, as if speaking throughout all the ages, right to you, right now, he says, blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. Through the story of Thomas, God gives us a great gift. The Lord takes Thomas's doubts and dispels, dispels them, but he also uses them to mark his people, you and me, as blessed. May we, too, be signs that point to the resurrection. Alleluia. Christ is risen. The Lord is risen indeed. Alleluia. Alleluia.